Merry Christmas. If you're new, uh, joining us for the first time, welcome. My name is Robin, and um, I serve as the associate pastor here at King's Church. Um, this is a special service for us. Um, for one, we're meeting on a Saturday afternoon. We normally, um, as you saw in the bulletin, we usually meet on Sunday mornings. Um, so this is different. Um, two, also, we'll have all the kids with us for the entire service. Uh, we want to give the staff and volunteers of our children's ministry a break. Uh, but more than that, um, it's a special opportunity for the whole family to worship together um, from beginning to end. It's a way for us to remember that the children and the youth are such an important, vital part of our church family. And having them stay with us just reminds us of that. This doesn't happen often, so we're thankful that they can be with us. Um, I want to welcome everybody. If, if you're here for the first time, maybe you have um, maybe you found out about the church or the website, or you have friends that are here and they brought you. We're so glad that you're here. Um, especially glad to see Marianne and Mark. Uh, Marianne, she had hip surgery and a lot of other complications happen afterwards, and so she's been in the hospital for a couple months, so it's so good to see you here. And Mark, thanks for bringing her. Um, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, so if you're able, would I, I would ask you to stand with me. Uh, just four verses. Matthew 1, verses 21 through 23. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Luke 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can celebrate your birth. I pray now that your spirit would come and you would comfort us and you would speak to us. Give us open hearts, all the distractions, all the busyness and all the worry that can just choke out the work that you are doing, we pray that you would give us openness and a responsiveness now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, since we have the kids with us, I'm going to be using lots of pictures throughout the sermon. Um, hopefully it'll help the sermon be a little bit more understandable. I think some of the adults might enjoy it as well, I mean, especially if you're a visual learner. Um, over the past four weeks of Advent, we've been looking forward to Christmas, the day of Jesus' birth. If you pull up the first slide, uh, this picture shows what it might have looked like for Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Mary and Joseph lived in the Middle East, so they would have been dark complexion. Now, I don't know about you, but as a child, I grew up seeing pictures of a white Caucasian Jesus who had brownish blonde hair and blue eyes, the kind of guy I would love to look like. Um, but Jesus would have been darker skinned, and, especially, and he probably would have had brown or, or black eyes. Uh, Mary was a teenager, maybe 13 years old. Now, the woman in this picture looks uh, a lot older, but Mary would have looked like an eighth grader. Um, do we have actually an eighth grade teenager in, in the house here? Macy? Yeah, so Mary would have looked about the way Macy looks. Um, looks she's, she would have been very young. Also, Mary and Joseph didn't have a lot of money. They came from a humble family. And that may be part of the reason why Mary had to deliver her baby in some sort of a manger, in a barn, and Jesus' first bed was a manger. Now, we know there was no room in any of the hotels, but if they had money, 
it's possible that the hotel manager could have made space. Because most people, when they see a young couple where the wife is about to deliver a baby, the hotel manager would probably go out of his way to make space for the pregnant mother. But Mary and Joseph must have looked so poor and so humble that they're almost easy to dismiss, almost sort of easy to put aside. And so the only space that's available for them is an inn, a manger. And the point is there's no room anywhere and nobody went out of his way to make room. So he ended up having to stay in a barn and delivering baby Jesus, the savior of the world, in a manger around animals. Now, this would have absolutely been shocking. If you were to tell the average Jewish person at that time that the Savior of the world would be born in a manger, they never would have believed you. They would have thought you were crazy. And in order to understand why nobody would have believed you, you have to understand what was in the mind of a Jewish person at that time. What would have been going through the mind of a Jewish person? What would they have been expecting from a Savior? Now, about a 1,000 years ago, the Israelites were constantly getting into battle with other, neighbor, with other neighboring countries. And one of their worst enemies were the Philistines. For years, the Jews were harassed by the Philistines. And there's this one very, very famous battle that takes place between the Israelites and the Philistines. And we read about it in 1 Samuel 17. And I bet you know the story. The Philistine soldiers and the, and the Israeli soldiers are lined up and they're facing each other. And out of the Philistines, a giant named Goliath steps forward and he says to the Israelites, there's no need for all of us to get into war. You send out your best soldier and have him come fight me. And if he beats me and if he kills me, uh, our entire army, we will come and serve you. But if I defeat your soldier, all of you will come serve us. So come and send your best soldier. Israelites are terrified. They've never seen a human being this big before. None of the soldiers want to fight Goliath. Of course, this is absolutely embarrassing. King Saul, the king of Israel, looks around and he's wondering if any one of his soldiers would be willing to go up against Goliath, but nobody's willing. King Saul is so desperate that he promises to give his daughter in marriage to the soldier who fights against Goliath and defeats him. But even then, no takers. Nobody's willing to go up against Goliath until a shepherd boy by the name of David hears what's going on, and he cannot believe what he's hearing. He can't believe how offensive and how rude and how disrespectful that Goliath is, is acting, and none of the Israeli soldiers are willing to do anything about it. So David steps out of the Israeli camp. He, t- he steps towards Goliath. He has a slingshot and five pieces of stone, and he runs towards Goliath, and he yells out, You ogre! Who do you think you are? You come at me with a big fancy sword and a shield and with all your fancy equipment, but I come to you in the name of God, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've disrespected, and I will kill you now, and everybody will know that the Lord of God reigns. David swings this thing round and round, and it goes, and it lands right in between Goliath's eyes, and he falls dead. And immediately, David is held a champion. David was courageous enough to stand up against Goliath, and he kills him. David eventually becomes Israel's king. David becomes one of Israel's greatest kings under King David. The kingdom expands. They defeat their neighbors in war, 
And after King David, under his son Solomon, the kingdom continues to expand, and it's so glorious, it's almost beyond, beyond belief. Now, in one, and one of the things that we read about is that the story of King Solomon is so outrageous, it's almost become like legend, almost like fairy tale. And we're told that the Queen of Sheba, we have this photo here, this picture, that the Queen of Sheba, who lives 1,400 miles away, she's heard about King Solomon and the palace and the kingdom and the riches, and she says, this can't be true. I need to go see for myself. And so she makes this 1,400-mile journey, which would have taken about three months, and when she gets there, and she says, now that I've seen with my own eyes, it's actually better. It's actually better and more outrageous and more unbelievable than the things that I've heard. King Solomon, what you've established here is absolutely unbelievable. Israel is the most powerful kingdom at this time. This is the height of Israel's glory. This is the golden age of Israel. Now, when we get to our passage with Mary and Joseph, it's been almost a thousand years since the time of King David and King Solomon. And Jews like Mary and Joseph have been waiting and they've been praying and they've been waiting for another king to come who would finally rescue them and restore Israel's glory. They were waiting for a savior that would save them from all their hardships because unfortunately, after King Solomon, things start to fall apart. The entirety of King David and King Solomon's reign is only 80 years. What happened? First, this powerful kingdom under King Solomon is split in two. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, becomes the king of Judah. We have a slide up here. He becomes the king of Judah down in the south, and another man by the name of Jeroboam becomes the king of Israel up in the north. But eventually, both of these kingdoms are defeated by their enemies, and they become slaves to these powerful nations. First, it's the Assyrians. For a couple hundred years, they're enslaved to the Assyrians, and after the Assyrians, it's the Babylonians. The Babylonians conquer, and it's their empire. The Israelis, the Israelites are serving the Babylonians, and after the Babylonians, it's the Persians, and after the Persians, it's the Greeks. And by the time that Jesus is born, Israel is under the control of the Romans. It's one supreme power after another for hundreds of hundreds of years. Now, when I was a kid, my grandfather used to tell me stories of when he was a young boy. And he remembers when Japan attacked Korea. And Japan ruled over Korea for 35 years, from 1910 to 1945. And from the time that he was born until he got married, he was essentially forced to become Japanese. He was taught Japanese history and Japanese culture. Um, he was forced to memorize and sing the Japanese national anthem. He was forced to speak Japanese at school. And most painful of all, he saw his parents being very, very mistreated by the Japanese, so he hated Japan. And when he would tell me these stories, I would feel bad for him, but honestly, it was hard for me to really understand how much hatred he could have. It was hard for me to really empathize for his deep resentment. For 35 years, Korea was under Japanese occupation. It's a dark time in Korea's history. And at the time when Jesus was born, it's been almost 600 years that the Jews have been under the control of another country, 600 years. And it's hard for any of us to imagine how that would have affected the psyche of a Jewish person. I think about how angry and resentful my grandfather became after just 35 years, how angry and desperate and hopeless must the Jewish people have been after 600 years of being ruled by another country. But you know what's worse than being a slave and being ruled by another country? It's being enslaved and feeling like God has completely abandoned you. 
Now, if you pick up your Bible, and if you were to turn to the last book in the Old Testament, you would have, it's the book of Malachi. And if you were to turn to the first book in the New Testament, it's the book of Matthew. And for me, it's just two little pages here. But in between these two pages is 400 years. And this time period is known as the 400 years of silence. During this time, there are no prophets, no more messengers, nobody sent from God warning Israel or encouraging Israel or reminding Israel that God still cares, that he's still there, that he's calling them to repent. It's absolute silence for 400 years. And as bad as their circumstances were and as bad as their suffering was, God is absolutely silent. And the Jews are wondering if God has completely abandoned them. Now, I think this picture, this next picture, captures what it must have felt like for the Israelites. There's, in this picture, there's this dreary sense of abandonment. Like, I mean, if you were there in the swampy area and you were to say hello, it'd be like, hello, hello, hello. Is anybody out there, out there, out there? You imagine just kind of roaming around in this place for even just a few days, let alone for 400 years, where the familiar voice and the familiar presence of God is completely gone. This is frightening. There's a sense of hopelessness that settles in. Where is God? Why isn't he speaking? Why isn't he saying anything? And then we get to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. After 400 years, the silence is finally broken. God speaks again. It's not through a prophet. This time it's through an angel. He appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him that Mary, his wife, will have a son and they're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to focus on these two names that finally breaks this 400 years of silence, Jesus and Emmanuel. Now, if you were to ask a Jew during that time what they wanted more than anything, they would have said either revenge or freedom. They would have wanted the Roman soldiers kicked out of their land. They would have wanted a great warrior, someone like David from a thousand years ago, who would have been fearless and bold, that would stand up against the Roman Empire and defeat them. They would have wanted a king that would rule over them the way King Solomon did. That's what they would have wanted more than anything. They would have said, we want to be saved from the Romans. I don't think they would have said, we want to be saved from our sins. Of course, the Jews knew that they were sinners, but that's not what was urgent. It wasn't a felt need. They just wanted relief from their suffering and their hardship. And if I were to ask you today, what's that one thing you want right now more than anything? What would it be? For married couples who are experiencing conflict, you're you're just fighting all the time, maybe more than anything, you just want peace. For some of the working professionals who can't stand your job, what you want is just a new job with a better boss, with better pay, and with better coworkers. Or for some of the teenagers, maybe it's something as simple as an iPhone. Um, the phone is the most important way for you to connect with other friends. And maybe in your circles, it makes a difference whether or not you have an iPhone or a Samsung that explodes in your pocket. <laughs> and all of those things are good things. These are important things, except the iPhone. Um, <laughs> And on the slide, I have a picture of a runner who looks pretty miserable if you pull up that slide. 
Now, one, um, he's running in pants, which aren't the best uh, clothes to be running in. Two, I don't, I don't know exactly what kind of shoes he's got on, but they almost look like bowling shoes. And his, he's got two arms in front of him while he's running. And I'm not a professional runner, but the last time I checked, you don't run like this, right? It's usually one arm in front of the other. And so he's, he's got horrible form. Um, and I think oftentimes we feel like this runner. Life can be a grind. Things don't work out the way you expect. You and your spouse find yourselves at an impasse. There never seems to be enough money. People we care about are getting sick all the time. Because of all of these things, we're tired and we're weary and maybe we're even exhausted with life. It's frustrating. We get discouraged. So we think maybe if I can just find a new job or get new friends or if one of my family members can just get past this illness, then things will be better. Now, maybe the runner, if you pull up the slide again, maybe the runner in our picture, he's been discouraged from his running. He's not making much progress. No matter how hard he tries, he can't seem to run more than a mile. So he thinks to himself, well, maybe if I just get some new Nikes or if I get one of those spandex, I just got to keep my legs or maybe then I'll be a better runner. Uh, or maybe if I get a personal trainer, um, then maybe I'll have better running form. But what if the runner in our picture here his problem is not with what he's wearing or that he's got bad running form. What if the real problem is that he's got a defective heart? He was born with a weak heart that's just not strong enough to handle running. And if that's the case, if his real problem is that he has a defective heart, would it make any difference at all whether or not he got new running shoes or a new outfit or if he even had a professional trainer? Of course not. Christmas is the time of the year where we remember that God sent his son to deal with the things that matter the most, our defective hearts. The angel tells Joseph to name his son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus comes first and foremost to deal with our sins. Jesus comes to heal our defective hearts that cause us to continuously sin and rebel against God and sin and hurt the ones that we love. Now, it's not that God is oblivious or that he doesn't care about the very real difficulties and the hardships that we go through. He promises to make everything right when he comes back again. But on Christmas, Jesus comes to deal with our sin because fundamentally everything that's broken, everything that's wrong, and everything, that, everything that's dying is rooted in sin. Now, the son of Joseph is called Jesus, but he's also given this title, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I think many of you here believe with all of your heart that Jesus has saved you. You recognize that you're a sinner and that the only thing that can cleanse you and save you is the blood of Christ. You hold on to that and you believe that. But oftentimes, you struggle. You struggle to believe that God is actually with you. Now, this might be because of your past experiences. Some of you have had maybe fathers or parents or a spouse or close friends that have walked out on you or have abandoned you. And because of that, you've been deeply scarred. It's hard for you to believe that a God that you can't even see is actually with you. And for some of you, it's not because of your past experiences with people. It's because of your current circumstances. It's all of the suffering and the hardship and the disappointment. It's hard for you to believe that God is with you when your life seems to be falling apart. Because if he is, why doesn't he do anything about it? Does he care? Is he punishing me? I've got another slide up here. And in this picture, you, you see a, um, a father and a son. And let me just say, the hardest part of this preparing for this sermon was actually finding the right pictures 
to convey what I'm trying to say. When I Googled um, father and son under Google Images, I came across a lot of photos with fathers and sons having a great time. You know, they're at the beach and the father's throwing up the, the sun up into the, into the sky and catching him. <laughs> so great. You know, they're up on the mountain overlooking the green. It's just beautiful. They're having a great time. But it was actually really hard to find a picture that was a little more realistic, a picture that showed sometimes life doesn't always feel so happy and green. And in this picture, you, you have this scene where um, there's a lot, of, a lot of clouds. It's overcast. Um, you have some greenery, you have some bushes, but there's a lot of brown. There's a lot of brown spots. Um, and it's not a bright, sunny day at all. And when I look at this picture, I imagine that the sun would be scared to be on this path or to be on this mountain by himself. I mean, if you were to put this child on this path and say, go, go, go walk, he would be anxious and he would be nervous because there aren't a lot of people around and he's not sure about the journey ahead. He's, he's going to wonder, am I going to be um, strong enough to make it? He's going to be, am I courageous enough? But what comforts this boy is the fact that his dad is right there next to him, talking to him and reassuring him that he won't leave him. And oftentimes, life is like this picture. You feel like this small and helpless boy, and you're in, you're in this big open area called life. And there's so many things that are uncertain. You're not sure what's up ahead. You're not sure what's going to sneak up from behind you. And into this uncertainty and into this fear, if you could hear with your spiritual ears, if they could be open, you would hear God saying to you, I am with you. I'm not leaving you. And if you could open up your spiritual eyes, and if you were able to see you will see God himself standing right next to you, holding your hand. Mary and Joseph and all the other Jews were waiting and expecting a mighty warrior, a savior that would come and rescue them once and for all. And you see the savior does come, and he does come to rescue. But he doesn't come the way that we might expect. He enters a world through a humble teenager. He doesn't come into Solomon's palace. He comes into a manger surrounded by animals. And Christmas is a time where we, where we take a step back and we say, my goodness, what sort of a God is this? What sort of a king chooses to come in absolute humility and chooses to surround himself for the rest of his life with the poor and the sick, those that are rejected and the sinners? And today, this God and this king invites us to kneel before his son, to kneel before Jesus with gratitude and joy and in worship because it's the Savior that comes to save us from our sins and he promises to be with us until he comes back again. Now, all the things that the Jews were hoping for back then and all the things that you and I hope for today, for sickness to be gone, for relationships to be made right, and for sin and wickedness to be completely rid from this planet, all of that will happen one day. Jesus promises that and he guarantees it. Because when Jesus died and resurrected from the dead, his resurrection was proof that he had conquered sin and death, and that he had the power to make everything right. But until then, the promise we're given is that Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. And let that comfort us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this promise 
that Jesus, you've come. You've come pursuing us. You've come to fix our defective hearts more than all of the things that we want and more, all, more than all of the felt needs that we wish would be better. God, you came to address our deepest needs. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. And thank you for this promise that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And I pray for every person here, Father, whom you love and you see and you're so mindful of everything that they are going through. And I pray that they would experience your comfort, that they would know that you have not left them, that they would not blame themselves, that they would not lose heart, that they would not lose sight of you, that they would know that you are with them. This morning, as we celebrate Christmas, all the more would you make that a reality in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.